Well, good morning and welcome. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. And as Chris said earlier, uh, I believe, uh, today we are continuing this series in Amos. And it's kind of a PG-13 series. And today's going to feel a little bit different probably than most sermon times. You don't need to email me. I know it's weird. It's different. That's okay. The first one a little long too. I'll work on that. Uh, <laughs> for the past two weeks, we've been in this series, At What Cost? Amos on Trafficking. Looking at the Old Testament book of Amos and asking what this ancient text has to speak to us today uh, in this issue, of modern issue of, of sex trafficking in our context. The prophet, the prophet Amos was writing 2,700 years ago to the people of Israel. Israel had become a very prosperous, secure, comfortable nation. And into that, the prophet Amos speaks this, this stirring and this challenging indictment from God to Israel And the issue for God wasn't that Israel was prosperous. It wasn't that they were comfortable or they were secure. It wasn't that they didn't go to church and sing the right songs and give their offerings and give their sacrifices. They did. For Amos, the issue, I mean, for God, the issue was that their hearts didn't reflect God's heart. And so God says to Israel, you are so blessed as a nation. You are so rich and comfortable. But instead of using those resources... To care for the marginalized and the poor and the widow and the orphan and the prisoner. Instead of caring for the people that my heart cares about, you've made it about your own comfort and your own security and even your own recreation. That's what consumes your heart and your life. God says to Israel, you think that I'm satisfied with all your religious activities and your offerings and your tithes and your songs, but I hate them. I hate your songs and your festivals and your feasts and all of the stuff that you call religion. That's not worship. Not of me, at least. What I want to see is a river of justice for the vulnerable. That's worship. That's the standard that I am using as your God, as your creator. When builders are building a wall, they will often use what's called a plumb line. A plumb line is a string that you run that basically makes sure that you are staying on task, so that as the wall is going up, it can be kept straight. Without a plumb line, it's easy for a wall to start to veer off. And if that happens, the wall is basically worthless. It needs to be torn down, down to the foundation and rebuilt. Well, here in Amos chapter 7, the prophet Amos gets a vision from God, and it's a vision of God using that plumb line. Let's read together. Amos chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Then he showed me another vision. I saw the Lord standing beside a wall that had been built using a plumb line. He was using a plumb line to see if it was still straight. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? I answered, a plumb line. And the Lord replied, I will test my people with this plumb line. I will no longer ignore all their sins. God is telling Israel through the prophet Amos that he is going to test them to see if what they built was what they were supposed to have built. If they've stayed on track, on course, if they're doing what they were supposed to have been doing all along, and they hadn't. And so God allows judgment to come. God, the very same God who had brought them out of Egypt, who had rescued them from slavery and oppression in Egypt, now allows the nations around them to come 
God removes his protection and his blessing and allows the nations surrounding them to come and to defeat them and to drag them back away into captivity, into exile, back into slavery. He allows Israel to become the very marginalized, vulnerable people that they had failed to see in their midst. And so for the past two weeks, we've looked at these passages and simultaneously looked at the subject of sex trafficking, a subject that I think is uncomfortable probably for many of us in this room, a subject that I think for many of us, most of our lives has felt like it's something that's very far away, very foreign. I mean, I think we hear the term trafficking and we, we get a picture in our mind of these news stories of, of women being shipped in cargo containers on ships from China. We think the trafficking is something that happens in, in Bangkok or New York or L.A. or Juarez. What we've tried to illustrate over the past couple of weeks is that this isn't just a global problem. This is a huge problem right here in the Twin Cities. According to the state of Minnesota website, in 2015, Minnesota had the third highest number of human trafficking cases in the nation. In a six-month study by local prosecutors, they found that over 34,000 advertisements posted online for sex in the Twin Cities. Minneapolis is one of the top cities in the nation for the trafficking of children for sex. In fact, 40% of sex trafficking cases in Minnesota involve minors. And this isn't just an urban problem. This doesn't just happen in North Minneapolis. This doesn't just happen on Hennepin Avenue. This is throughout the Twin Cities and across the state. And yet I think for most of us, for me, it is easy to go about our days, to go to our workplaces and our malls and our schools and all these places and be oblivious to this reality that is in our midst, to fail to recognize the vulnerable people that are in our midst. So we've been asking the question, how do we not make the same mistake that Israel made? We, like Israel, are living in a time of relative affluence, of comfort, of security. We, like Israel, have been incredibly blessed. But to be a blessing to the world around us, and as Caitlin pointed out last week, the very real danger that we face and that Israel faced before us is that our comfort so often can lead to complacency. How do we ensure that it doesn't? Because God's heart hasn't changed. God's plan for his people and for this world and for the people that are hurt in this world has not changed. God's plumb line has not changed. Is our wall straight? Or does it need to be torn down and rebuilt? And over the last couple of weeks as we've talked about this, I think this is striking home with many of you. It has with me. And so we've heard from many of you. Okay, so we see this. We hear this. We weren't aware, but now we are. Our eyes couldn't see it, and now we do. But what do we do? This problem is so huge. It's so massive. How do we actually take practical steps to begin to move the ball forward on this? In some ways, it's almost like the insulation has been stripped back from the wire. This, this insulation that kept us from seeing these problems. And now we've touched that wire. Even in small ways, we've been exposed. We've been introduced to the problem, and many of us in this place want to move from being introduced to the problem to actually being engaged in combating and fighting and solving the problem. This series has been really collaborative. In fact, Becca Backman, our outreach director, who we'll hear from later in the service today, has researched this stuff for months. 
Uh, and she's been sharing with us the organizations that she's met with, the programs that she's seen, ways that we can effectively, in healthy, sustainable ways, be engaged in our everyday lives, in our homes, and in our workplaces, and in our schools, and in our communities, to actually begin to affect change. We know that for most of us, that's not going to mean selling our houses and, and moving to live among the homeless and kicking down the doors of brothels and drug houses. But maybe for some of us, we know that for most of us, this doesn't mean you know, starting a safe house for women escaping the industry. But maybe for some of us, but we also know that for all of us in our everyday lives, there are things that we can be involved in that can help in either preventing the prevention of sex trafficking or can help in actually bringing restoration to and restoration of the victims of sex trafficking. Chris opened the series on week one, and Caitlin repeated it last week, with this premise that sex trafficking is real, sex trafficking is wrong, but we can make a difference. In our everyday lives, in our homes, in workplaces, in schools, and in our community. And it starts in our homes. I think it maybe sounds strange to some of us. Like, most of us don't think of our homes as being a place where sex trafficking is happening. But the reality is, technology has brought sex trafficking right into our living rooms, and our bedrooms, and our kitchen tables. Right into our laptops and our phones. And it looks like kids who bully other kids on social media and coerce them into engaging in stuff that they know they shouldn't. It looks like teens sending compromising pictures of themselves to other teens who then use that as leverage to get them to do things that they know that they shouldn't. Pictures that last forever. It looks like online predators who know how to manipulate kids and manipulate adults. I'm guessing that virtually everyone in this room, especially those of us who are men, have received friend requests online on social media from this woman who just happens to be gorgeous and happens to be wearing a bathing suit and happens to not have any of our shared friends, but who wants to friend us. I don't want to burst anybody's bubble. She may not actually want to be your friend. (laughs) In fact, she's probably not even real. And what she's inviting you into probably leads directly to sex trafficking and porn. And if you're receiving those invitations... So are your kids. Porn. That's a subject that doesn't get talked a lot about in churches. And it could be the subject of an entire series. But in the context of this conversation, let me just say this. As technology has created, so has our exposure and our access to porn. And I think culturally we've become desensitized to what porn does in us and in our culture to the damage that it does. I hear so many parents who say some variation of, yeah, I know my kids use porn, but don't all the kids, isn't that just what kids do these days? To married couples who have it as part of their kind of marital exercises that they're engaging in this. And it's even presented as sort of a freedom of expression. Like, hey, if they want to make money doing that, it's their bodies. Who am I to say? It's harmless. It's victimless. Porn is not harmless. Porn is not victimless. I think porn harms the viewer and the viewed. 
Porn makes victims of everyone who touches it. Porn destroys love. Do any amount of research and you can see the correlations that exist between our exposure to porn and our inability to actually learn to love and be loved, to experience and express love and intimacy. But if you don't believe that argument, do any amount of research and you'll see the link that exists between the porn industry, which brings in millions and billions of dollars a year, and the sex trafficking industry, which brings in far more. Porn isn't an anonymous act in the privacy of your bedroom. It not only destroys real intimacy in relationships and deadens us to being able to experience real intimacy, but it also contributes directly to and feeds and funds the sex trafficking industry. I was talking with Amanda, and she said virtually all of the women that they work with in sex trafficking, somewhere in their history, somewhere in their journey, porn played a role. Pictures that were taken, things that were leveraged against them played a role. This is a bold statement, but I stand by it. If there is porn in your house, there is sex trafficking in your house. I think it is that stark. But if we remove porn from our homes, we remove that stronghold, we remove that presence from our lives, from our relationships, from our marriages, from our dating life, from our kids, and from our homes, and our homes begin to be a place that is free in an island where few are. Do you have an internet safety plan for your family in your home? Are you able to talk with your kids about interacting with strangers online? Are you able to access the browsing history of everyone in the home? I said it in the first service, it's not on my script, but I realized as I was talking that in my family, I am the one who monitors our internet. There's nobody who's monitoring me. Do we talk about that as a family? Does my wife have access? Do my kids have access so that I'm accountable to each of them? We would recommend that every family come up with an internet safety plan where they've actually talked about, this is what the internet's going to look like in our house, in our family. Get the input of your teens and your kids so that everybody contributes and everybody owns it. But ultimately, this this isn't about porn, ultimately. Instead, it's about building a culture in our homes that nourish healthy, biblical understandings of what sex is, of what beauty is, about what respecting one another means according to Scripture. It's about understanding and establishing a culture in our homes that have built into what does the Bible have to say about not objectifying anyone ever, not for sex, not for what they can accomplish for us, not what they can bring to us, but loving people, seeing them as sons and daughters. It's about building a culture in our homes where the people in our lives know how deeply they are loved. About teaching our daughters and our sons what a healthy body image means. Teaching them to see the opposite sex as as image bearers of God and to see themselves that way. Teaching our daughters and our sons the value that they have in the eyes of God and to see themselves that way and begin to see the others in their lives that way too. It's about building a culture that teaches our daughters and our sons to limit their access, not just to porn, but really to any messages, to be sensitive to any messages that are building some sort of corrupted, distorted version of what love is, of what beauty is, about what sexuality is. And so, yes, that means porn, but it also means sitting with your kids and watching the shows that they watch and going, yeah, this is hilarious. 
and the primary story is hooking up. It's, it's, it's seeing the magazines that your teens are reading and saying, yeah, there's some great articles, but the picture that they are presenting is a one-size-fits-all beauty that is going to leave you feeling less than. It's about knowing how we and our kids are engaging in media, and that's not legalism. It's about building a culture where safety and love and, and, and health get to rule in our houses and in our homes. And media is at least one of the ways that I think a lot of that is compromised. Our homes safe. When we create cultures in our homes that are safe, we are helping to prevent sex trafficking. But I want to turn the corner because I think our homes can be so much more than that too. Our homes can be a place that not only helps prevent self-trafficking, sex trafficking, but can also contribute to the restoration of women and men escaping the life. That can help give these young men and women a second chance as they are trying to rebuild their lives. I want to invite a new friend up uh, to join me up here this morning. This is Julie O'Brien. And Julie and her husband and their three kids have only started attending in the last few months. But Julie and her family have been involved for the last several months with an organization here in the Twin Cities and around the nation called Safe Families. And Safe Families essentially is a safe home where kids can be welcomed. So Julie, take let's welcome Julie. In just a sentence or two, tell us kind of what Safe Families is and how you got involved. Are we on? Let me, let me take a pass at that. Safe Families, we're going to stand really close otherwise. Okay. There we go. It's way better. <laughs> okay. Um, so Safe Families is an organization um, that really strives to help uh, families, particularly with children who are in crisis. And um, they do that in a couple different ways. Uh, basically, they provide um, homes, safe homes for for kids to stay in. Uh, it can be lots of different configurations um, from just a weekend to a week to six weeks um, to an ongoing situation, which is what um, I'm involved in. Uh, and they also uh, provide a network for those families who are struggling, who are in crisis. Um, they try and pro provide resources and um, guidance to those families so they can get back on their feet. And they really are striving to also keep the family intact. So those kids go home to that family um, and don't end up in the foster care system. So, And I got involved, or my family got involved, um, through actually just through some friends. They had an information night. We went and not expecting anything, um, but God really spoke to us that night. Um, and, you know, my husband, who... who He's not here to defend himself, but he but is a Let's very yeah right. <laughs> He's a very um, he doesn't like chaos, and we have three kids. We're really really active, um, and we lead really busy lives. And that night in the car, when I said, "What did you think?" and he said, "I think this is something we could do." I thought, "Boy, God is really working right now." And so um, that sort of started the ball rolling with us um, uh, contacting safe families and getting paperwork started from there. So. And as we talked, as you told a little bit of your story, yeah. it's not been all smooth sailing and all roses the whole no. time. No, no. I mean, there's definitely ups and downs um, when you're dealing with a family that's in crisis, a, a family that has experienced a lot of trauma. Um, you know, there are going to be setbacks. And, you know, I think what God has really challenged us is to to lead um, or love in, in times when it's inconvenient, um, in times when it's uncomfortable, um, and to just, you know, not be 
judging, but also, but only to just be loving and love through that all. That's awesome. Yeah. One of the things that Safe Families is recently, or starting to introduce, is what they call Safe Friends. Essentially, this concept is you've got your safe family, like, for instance, the O'Briens, but then they are surrounded, and they've been vetted so that the organization knows that they're, in fact, safe. But then they can provide a list of friends that are going to also be safe friends that can come around them and support them as they are. Am I characterizing that properly? Yeah, yeah. So there are the host families. Those are the the families that take children in. Um, And then there are the family friends, and family friends um, circle around not only the host families to help provide them maybe with resources, like in our situation, our children are older, and we took in a six-month at the time. Um, so just getting some of those supplies, things like that, that we needed um, to kind of get going with, with hosting that child. But also, um, the parents often need a family friend just to come alongside them, mentor them in parenting, um, and, and just kind of help them and be their friend as they're kind of going through a crisis situation. As you were talking about the relationship you have with your family that you're working with, I mean, it's almost like kind of a, an aunt and uncle. It's, it's being yeah. a healthy family representative in their family that's kind of grafted in. And I love the idea of the fact that there are people that can come around you so that you're not having to do this alone. Right. Uh, you can do it with a group of people. It fits kind of our small church model really well. If there's a small church where there's one family that's doing it, rest of that group could be a, a pit crew around them. So Julie, thank That's you exactly. for your time. Let's, let's thank Julie. We have more information about Safe Families and all the groups you're going to hear about today uh, out at the resource table. And Julie, I'm sure would love to talk with you as well. Sex trafficking, uh, the fight against sex trafficking also happens in our schools and in our workplaces. Sex trafficking starts at a very young age. It says, According to the statistics, over 50% of exploited adults were first trafficked as children. And the average age of being started in trafficking is 13 years old. Imagine that. And there's lots of reasons why kids end up being trafficked. And the more that we were able to actually identify and address those precipitating issues in their lives, the more effective we're going to be in actually stopping and combating trafficking. Homelessness, for instance, is a huge factor. Chris, in the first week, said that within 48 hours of being homeless, a child on the streets will be approached by someone, most likely who will who present themselves as being willing to offer a helping hand, give them a safe place to stay, a warm meal, but who's in fact trying to actually exploit them. One national study found that being homeless for longer than 30 days was the single biggest factor for teens becoming sexually exploited. Another huge factor, according to the Polaris Project, are kids that are coming in and have recently experienced immigration or migration or relocation. And they've come and they're not established. They don't necessarily have a home. They don't have a network of people around them. And so they are vulnerable. And these are kids who are desperate, who don't see any alternative. They don't see a choice. In week one, Chris quoted Rachel Lloyd, the author of a book called Girls Like Us, who herself was rescued from trafficking, and she says this, the sex industry isn't about choices. It's about lack of choices. These kids are in dire situations, and so they don't see any alternatives, and they just do what they have to do to survive, to find a place to sleep, a meal to eat. But what if we could give them other alternatives? What if we could help homeless kids to see the choices that they have? What if we could help that new immigrant family, that new refugee family, to see the choices that they have, to provide them with choices, new choices? 
It's why we work with organizations like Safe Families and Source, who you're going to hear more about a little bit later on, with Refugee Life Ministries, who we've talked about for years. It's why we are working with an organization called Quincy House. I want to invite Tammy Moberg. Is Tammy here? There she is. <laughs> I want to invite Tammy uh, to come up here. Tammy works with uh, Quincy House. And in fact, Tammy and I have known each other for a number of years. Tammy and I used to worship together at a different church. And I remember seeing her out, and her husband would hold your daughter's hand while they sang. It was so cool. And Tammy and I are birthday buddies. July 22nd. There you go. Thanks, That's Facebook, for letting thing. me know that. Yeah, <laughs> So, Tammy, exactly. you've, you've, uh, you've been in the Moundsy School District uh, for a long time. Tell us a little bit about what Quincy House is, how you got involved. Right. So, thank you. And I just wanted to say thanks to Jason. I said earlier, I think it's such an amazing place that you guys get to sit here and talk about some of these hard things that a lot of churches just don't talk about. They ignore. And so, I think it's really um, imperative that you get this message out um, It's because it's happening all around us. And Jason said, um, we have been, we've raised our five children in Moundsview, and we um, attended Highview to Moundsview High School and lived on the Arden Hills side of town. And most of my life was heading this way, heading to Shoreview, Arden Hills, North Oaks, day after day after day with kids and their friends and sports and that kind of thing. And as um, my house was getting a little more quiet and as our kids were getting older, I was doing some volunteering and working at Irondale High School. And working with an organization called Stripes, working with young men who were struggling through high school. And I saw a side of our district that I'd never seen before because I'm, I've always been on the east side of the district. And we've taken our kids on many mission trips. We've been to Haiti. We've been to Ukraine. And I kind of kept probably flying over a lot of the kids that were one mile from our house, you know, to what, the, what I was seeing. And... I went to bring a boy home one day, and he was in the trailer park off of 35 and 96. And he said, Tammy, you can come in. I just got to get my stuff or whatever. And I walked into literally a, a worse than I've seen in other countries. And dog feces all over the floor, um, windows all taped up with plastic. Um, he was sleeping on piles of garbage and clothes and had insulation coming out of the ceiling and his parents slept, they were hoarders, and they slept on garbage bags literally in the middle of their um, living room. And here was a kid who was trying to go to school, trying to maintain his grades, trying to get through life. And I just, my heart just broke thinking, no kid, no kid should have to live in this experience. No kid should have to go home to this today. So I'd go home to my husband, and I'd say, David, we just need to buy a house by Irondale High School. We just need a place, a safe place, which I think is the word today we've used a lot, is a safe place for these young boys and girls to land. Because all I kept seeing was kids that never wanted to go home after school. And so what we did is a lot of praying, a lot of kind of putting together a plan and found a home in Moundsview that was actually um, given because of really generous donors. And we have a safe home now. Only the, it's only, the only one like it in our district um, over on the west side of the district on Red Oak Drive. Quincy provides a safe place for these kids to land after school so that they can have be told that they're valuable, they're loved, they're worthwhile, that we're here to come along and walk life. No one should walk life alone, right? So we come alongside and we have volunteers that come along and say, we're going to do life with you. And kids come in now and they have three meals a week at the table. We, my my goal was for them to have a place to sit around and be able to share their stories um, of homelessness. Um, we have a lot of kids that are homeless. We have kids that come into Quincy House in the morning before school to wash their clothes. 
We have kids that come in and shower um, just after school. We wash their sports um, team's uniforms because that's what Quincy does. And we couldn't do it without amazing churches like your church and Becca and her team. People have come out to mow our lawn, <laughs> pull weeds, because it's a lot to have two houses. And But you know what? You can do it when other people come alongside us as well. And so... We've seen firsthand, when we talk about sex trafficking, I have had two experiences with girls at the age of 10 and 12 where dad would um, sell them, traffic them out in order to pay bills, their bodies, 10 and 12-year-old girls, right in our Moundsview School District, then be sold, have sex with these men, and go on to school that day. I also had a family that the dad um, converted an old school bus into his office, and he would bring in men um, to have sex with his daughters in different, um, just parking lots and sell his kids. And now we have those kids, um, we've had them come through Quincy House. So I think it is being called to be uncomfortable. I think when those days are tough, like we were talking about, like, I don't think God calls us to be comfortable. I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we uncomfortable? And I think that's what... Um, I think we need to get closer to the broken because when you do have a face on something, it all of a sudden becomes real. You know, it's sorry. That's awesome. How do you see the church getting involved and coming alongside of you? Right. Well, I think um, the church, when you know about Quincy House and it's in your folder, pray, pray for our kids. I don't think anyone else is really praying for our kids but those that are involved with Quincy House. And pray that God will bring other people besides us into their lives. You know, pray for Quincy. Um, it takes a lot to run a place like this for kids. So we, we are thankful for the meals that come in. We're thankful for people that donate to Quincy. We're thankful for people that come and just serve alongside us. Um, it changes the life of these kids. These kids have said many times, I don't know what I'd do without a place like Quincy House. Because life is so chaotic and messy at home. So, It's easy to think that this doesn't happen in the Moundsview School District. But we have something like 106 kids that are actually registered as homeless in the Moundsview School District. And that doesn't include the many other kids who go house to house, couch to couch every night. And yet there are practical ways that we can mentor and coach and feed and play basketball with these kids to show them that they are valued and loved, set their course on a different set of choices. I want to invite one more friend up here. Lots of friends, man, our friends. Uh, Bruce Anderson is going to come up. Bruce is one of the leaders of one of the small churches here at ECC, and he and a number of people in their small church, as well as a couple of other groups here, go down regularly to First Covenant in downtown Minneapolis. First Covenant is one of the oldest covenant churches. Here you go, Bruce. One of the oldest covenant churches in Minnesota. It's right in the shadow of the beautiful U.S. Bank Stadium, and they regularly feed dozens and dozens uh, of homeless men and women there at their ministry. Bruce, tell us a little bit about how you got involved and what that looks like. Have I once again turned it off? Maybe? Okay. Let me try again. There we go. Well. Midas touch. (laughs) Thank you, Jason. Friend. Uh, Many of you know Mary and Tom Lochner, and uh, familiar to many as well are Keith and Rhonda Mermel. These guys are enthusiastic about this ministry that occurs at the building of First Covenant downtown Minneapolis. Let me put it this way. This might be a less uncomfortable step for some of you. And uh, 
Seriously, I invite you to consider it, and uh, we could show you how. First Covenant is the location. They have a staff director. There is a homeless program that I kind of like. Soup kitchens and that kind of thing, okay, they're worthwhile. We're feeding hungry people. We're trying to provide dignity. In this particular environment, First Covenant partners with an organization called St. Stephen's, and St. Stephen's works with a select group of people who find themselves homeless where they invest in counseling, job training, networking to get these people on their feet. Uh, we don't see too many repeats after 60 days. Uh, these people are launched. Every one of them, no. Some of them, for sure. And uh, I find great satisfaction in that. But let's be practical. What do we do? We don't make meatloaves at home and try to coordinate everything at don't, the church. You don't cook these by, at home like, from scratch <laughs> sometimes? Friends, I go to Costco. <laughs> <laughs> I buy seven trays of frozen beef lasagna, about three bags of organic green beans, and a couple of those wonderful uh, bags of those wonderful dinner rolls. Rhonda goes all out, and she does make cookies from scratch for dessert. But we go down there, we serve 50 to 60 people. We do it, as a, we do it not as individuals, but as a small church function. And uh, the comfort thing is, if you're not a relater, you don't have to go out and have a meal. We need dishwashers. Um, Keith and I get down there, as, as a retired guy, I'm able to go down there early, get the confection ovens going, and we serve a nice hot meal to people. And we do it on a fairly regular basis. You want to join us sometime? See me. Test it out. Maybe your small church is looking for something that is tangible, doable, and uh, very practical. That's awesome. Thank you, Ruth. Well done. I think that whole idea of a little bit less uncomfortable, these are steps. Each of them uh, is an opportunity where we could see ourselves perhaps changing a little bit of our daily patterns, our everyday life, and moving us towards actually being a part of, of making this happen. And Bruce has said he's willing to come and to coach and work with your small church and on how exactly to develop that system. I want to invite one last uh, friend up here today. Uh, this is Amanda Casey, who I mentioned earlier. And Amanda works with an organization called Source, uh, as well as an organization called Trafficking Justice. And both of those are organizations that are actively on the front lines fighting sex trafficking and working in the restoration of women and men who've come out of the life and... Uh, uh, she will also be our teacher this week at Sex Trafficking 101 on Wednesday night, which we invite all of you to come. Amanda, tell us just a little bit about how you got involved, what your story is, and uh, what's that, what uh, trafficking justice is. Yeah, we, um, I got involved in fighting trafficking simply by running a 5K for Source. Um, I had a friend who knew I was interested in running and asked if I wanted to run this 5K for an organization that fought trafficking here. In the U.S., I'd always thought it was overseas, and so I was excited when I found out I could do something here to fight trafficking without having to go to India or Cambodia or somewhere else. So um, I went and ran the 5K, met with the director, and talked to her. She um, told me about an organization called Trafficking Justice. I went to one of their seminars, and at the end, our executive director, Keith, got up and talked about how they were looking for 
track leaders. Um, these are just different involvement areas. And they were looking for someone who could help spread awareness. And I thought, well, I kind of have a big mouth and can do that. So I'll give that a go. And so I started. Um, he, it's all volunteer work, but um, he pretty much hired me volunteer-wise on the spot. We hire lots of volunteers here. Yeah. <laughs> and so he, um, we, I just started learning about trafficking because I was supposed to be spreading awareness on it. And as I started learning, I found out that that weird thing that happened to me when I was a teenager that I didn't know how to explain to anybody was actually trafficking. And so God started using the exploration of learning what trafficking was to start bringing healing to my own life. Um, from there, God just started putting it more and more on my heart that um, one day I wanted to work in the field, but I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't have a degree in social work. Um, I have an L.A.D. degree, and so I was like, I don't know what this looks like. And um, Source was hiring last December. My friend said, well, you should apply. And I said, well, I don't really qualify. And they said, well, just apply and see what happens, see what God does. So I applied, and um, they called me in for a second interview, and I thought they were just being nice because they knew who I was. And they offered me the job. So I've been working there as their outreach coordinator and advocate for almost a year now. So tell us what Source actually, and Trafficking mm-hmm. Justice, what, what does Source actually so, do? So Source, um, we reach out to those who are at risk or the marginalized communities. Um, we have a couple different divisions. We work with people who are in the art community as well as homelessness. And then we have the anti-trafficking division that um, is really split into two different areas. We have a restoration home, and then um, I lead their outreach teams. Um, and so we just go and do outreach to women who are currently in the life. Okay. And, and then, then go ahead. Yeah. And then trafficking justice um, just started out from a church. Um, my friend Adri started trafficking justice. She literally found out about trafficking, was interested in it, started getting her groups of people that she knew together to ex- um, explore the topic and see what was going on in um, the Twin Cities area. And so as they started coming together, they realized it was a bigger problem, and they all had different gifts and talents. They all had a heart for a different area that was still fighting trafficking. And so um, that's really how it started, as a small group out of Hosanna Church in Lakeville. Lakeville. And um, now, about a year ago now, we got our 501c3 and our official nonprofit organization here in the Twin Cities, helping mobilize churches and helping people see where they fit. We believe all everyone has a gift and a talent, and so we want you to use those gifts and talents the way that God is leading you to fight trafficking. That's awesome. Yeah, this idea that you guys are kind of a clearinghouse that can help match people's gifts and skills and resources against the needs so that we don't have to be necessarily experts in what all those needs are, what all those opportunities are. You guys can do that and help match us to that. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's things as simple as serving meals, um, cleaning houses, restoration houses, um, all the way up to we need lawyers sometimes to do. Yeah, there's a story um, that I just saw. Tell us a little bit of, of not the details necessarily of that person, but th- yeah. that story a little bit. Yeah, um, there's a, some current situations where the women coming out of the life um, have different needs for even lawyers that will represent them as they're trying to make changes in their life. They have different things that come up. Um, it's hard to get a job when you have a record. Um, so we need people who are willing to hire uh, these women who might have a record. Um, we need um, doctors 
that are willing to do sometimes pro bono work or therapists who are willing to work with them. Um, so we have that professional side, but we also just need people who are willing to teach them how to cook or how to clean or how to budget their money. Yep. I mean, all of those practical skills, when you hear that the average age of entry is between 12 and 14 or that 13 um, years old, think of the 13-year-olds you know. What do they know how to do? Yeah. Well, now they're adult women, and that's what they know how to do. You know, so and their healthy development stopped at 13, at 13. and they've not developed any of those adult skills. Right. So really, that's where we're at is trying to help them grow through that process. Um, and we're, it's kind of a sped up process because now they're adults and we have to hurry up and get them a job and hurry up and do this. You know, so we need lots of communities to come around them and support them as they go. Awesome. As we were talking today on the phone, you shared a passage with me uh, yeah. just conversationally that you want to share with us as a congregation as well. It's from Romans chapter 12, I believe. Yeah. Romans 12. I just love the way that the message puts Romans 12. Um, it says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to, cult- to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changing from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it, unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down into its levels of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. So I think like the biggest thing that I've heard you guys as a church, as leadership, talk about is just mobilizing and using the gifts and talents that you already have. We all have skills that can fight trafficking. They can sometimes seem small to us, but the reality is, is those small things, when we all come together, um, Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God and that shield of faith. And I think when we use our gifts and talents for God, that's part of that shield coming together and us forging that darkness. That's awesome. Thank you, Amanda. Let's thank Amanda. We'll hear more, more of her story Wednesday night. And we invite you to come and to bring friends to that as well. I want to invite one last friend, my only last friend, up uh, right now. This is Becca Backman, who we talked about earlier, outreach director. Part of what we recognize is that this place is so full. I've been here for two years, and I've met so many of you uh, who, you know, I knew you were a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or a mechanic or whatever. And as we're talking, it's come out that you also are doing prison ministry or doing work with homeless people or what are these, all these different stories. But a lot of us don't know those stories. We were at small church last night talking about this. And we said, does anybody at our church do prison ministry? I'm like, yes. <laughs> but we just don't talk about it. We don't know who those people are. And uh, there are so many of you that are involved. And so right now, there are some people that are coming around and passing out what we call an asset survey. And Becky, you can tell us a little bit more about what that is. Sure. So something, something that I've wanted to do for a long time, it's not about asking about your financial assets. So if you're worried about that, relax. I believe that where your heart is, your money will follow. So um, this is asking about what kinds of skills do you have? What kinds of passions do you have? What kinds of life experience do you have that can lend itself to helping our community? As M- Amanda said so well, when we all come together and bring our little pieces, that's what makes things happen.